am I? You know, we, we often do, how do we get here? What's our background? What's our whakapapa? As an academic who talks about anti-racism, I start off with giving myself legitimacy. It usually means when I talk about racism, people feel the need to tell me that I don't know. So here it goes. So if I was a doctor, I would tell you how much training I had um, if I was a medical doctor. So I'm a person who's done anti-racist work for over 20 years now, which is a little bit embarrassing to admit because then you can kind of guess my age. I have a degree in political science, Jewish studies, and English, master's degree in peace and conflict studies, and a PhD in peace and conflict studies, and I have worked on racism for my master's and my PhD. So when people say, give me your elevator pitch, I often say, oh, I wrote my dissertation about racism, what was it about? I basically researched how racism gets reproduced in anti-racist spaces. In a nutshell, I told white anti-racists that they still can be racist. <clears throat> so if you question some of the things I say, 20 years of experience behind it, so if you want to come debate me, come prepared. <clears throat> Why is it so difficult to talk about racism? So I love talking about racism. Sometimes I say, oh, I love racism, which is not what I mean. Um, what I mean is I'm really passionate having conversations with people who are passionate about changing um, society and making society better. I hold on to my notes because I will otherwise have stream of consciousness, which is pleasant for some, but very unorganized for others. Um, racism is a very touchy subject for other people. It's touchy because we have put so much negativity into it that when people hear the word racist in particular, not even racism, when they hear the word racist, what they hear is, this person is the worst person on the face of the earth, they're evil, they're rotten to the core. And of course, I am not that, I don't want to be associated with that, so therefore let's not talk about it. Um, and that's not what I mean. Usually when I talk about racism, I don't talk about people at all. I talk about systems in which people exist, in which people are socialized, and then in which people reproduce practices and habits and behaviors. Um, so I actually urge us to normalize talking about racism and talking about racism in a way that is not so emotionally loaded, which is very hard, because if you are a person of color, you will get very angry talking about racism, because it's something that impacts you, that you live under, that you come up against pretty much at every, every step of the way. So I'm also here to remind you to normalize anger. I will come back to anger in my 10th point. I have 10 points. Talking about anti-racism is a practice of being a killjoy. I will name some of the academics that I cite, but not all of them. So this is the work of Sarah Ahmed who says, when you do the difficult work, you will become the killjoy. When you point to the problem, you become the problem. When you point at racism, you will often become the problem instead of the problem that you point at. Which is why so many of us find it so hard to talk about racism because we are turned in the, into the problem. When I say we, I mean people of color. When I say people of color, that's a loose umbrella term that includes everybody who's not racialized as white. Um, and I talk about whiteness because we are in a predominantly white country, in a Western country. If I was in India, I would phrase this differently, so bear with me. Because racism is so associated with something evil, we turn it into something that is a judge of moral character. So if somebody points at racism in the room, we, you know, we as a society, turn it into, this is a judgment of somebody's moral character. 
So then we try to find ways to talk about the elephant in the room in ways that makes nobody angry, that makes nobody uncomfortable, and that doesn't really touch the root cause of things. So we replace racism with other things. At the moment, those other things are bias, um, discrimination. Yeah, I find bias is particularly tricky. Um, so by changing the meaning of what we want to talk about, I don't want to talk about being evil. I don't want you to attack me. We actually disappear the problem. And the problem of racism is a systemic one. It's not one about people. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that if somebody is individually racist to you in the supermarket that that is not hurtful, but that's not really the biggest problem with racism. The other problem with racism is that historically, <clears throat> we have somehow managed to forget where racism emerges for the first time. A, some people say racism is something that's always existed. Humans, by design and by nature, tend to exclude other people, and therefore we can't really fix racism because it's innate to humans to exclude between outsiders and insiders. Now, that's technically not correct, because while we exclude based on insider and outsider, um, we haven't done that necessarily based on some kind of inherent human characteristic that doesn't allow you to ever become an insider. And in the case of racism, race is not a marker of who is inside and who is outside. It's, in fact, a marker of who is human and who is not. I'll come back to that. Our understanding of racism has become very much reduced to one idea of racism that's very much tied to the Holocaust and pseudoscientific notions of racism. So the people who say somebody is biologically inferior. And we assume that that is the only racism. But that kind of racism was preceded by about 400 years of other forms of racism. So therefore, we say, well, we have proven pseudoscience of race to be not factual. Um, therefore, we have kind of resolved this, this, this problem with race so we can move on. But race has never really just been about biology. You know, it was always about social characteristics, about philosophy, about anthropology, um, and I'll talk to that. So for us, we need to understand that race is a marker of difference that classifies who is not human. And here's an anecdote. Race comes into the vocabulary in around the Middle Ages in Spanish, and then it becomes a word in the English vocabulary. It's initially only used in Spanish and Portuguese to describe cloth or default in breeding horses, but it's never referred to humans. It becomes gradually used to, defer to, to refer to humans in the process of what, is, what becomes the Spanish Inquisition and the process of what is commonly referred to as the conquest of the Americas. Um, and race then becomes used to classify types of human. Right? So while in the Spanish Peninsula, before the, um, before the conquest of the Americas, people say, well, if you are Christian, then you are part of us, but if you're Muslim or you're Jew, you're outside of us. How do we live side by side? Well, we force you to convert, because if we force you to convert, you no longer believe in the wrong God, um, and then you can live here because now you recognize that you have converted to the right God. But when the Europeans encounter indigenous people for the first time, they have no vocabulary to make sense of them. And they look at them, and they look at their practices, and they try to make sense of them through what is the most meaningful knowledge system, which is theology. So Columbus wrote in his diaries, these are a people without a god. Right? So he means these are people who don't have a soul. 
because he's not thinking about biology or genetics. He's like, I make sense of the world through theology, which is Christian theology. I've encountered these people who are inherently different from us. Um, it also turns out they don't have private property. So therefore, they are ultimately fundamentally different from us. This conversation in the Americas and the conversation in the peninsula in Spain, they meet each other. Right? So while in, in the peninsula people are trying to convert people and say, you can redeem yourself through conversion, then the conversation is, can indigenous people, quote unquote, redeem themselves through conversion, um, gets muddled up during the Inquisition, where the Spanish crown says, oh, we don't even know if people are converting and if they're converting properly. Because maybe they're converting and back home they don't eat pork. <laughs> you know, maybe they're saying they're Catholic, but back home they're, you know, observing Shabbos. So they start doing all of these practices of control, including force-feeding people pork. Now, I say this because the conversation around pork in Europe and immigrants has come back. Our measure of your, in, your degree of integration is whether you eat pork, right? This is a practice of the Inquisition. It measures how much you have redeemed yourself. So this conversation kind of reaches its pinnacle in, what, in a debate called the de debate of Valladolid in the 19, well, in the mid 1550s, where two schools of thought meet each other, right? Two monks who debate each other in Spain and say, we need to have a conversation around indigenous people. One of them says, indigenous people are humans. They're childlike, but they're human. They have a soul through conversion. They become just like us. So don't get me wrong, that debate was not indigenous people are just like us, yay. It was like, they're like us a little bit less. And then the other one was, no, indigenous people are natural slaves. They're natural slaves, and the way we engage with them is to perpetually exploit them because they are not human. Right? So that debate is won by the person who says, um, maybe indigenous people are humans, and that's why in the Spanish colonies, forced conversion became a thing. But because indigenous people were also exploited to work for free, then the conversation happened, well, who's going to do all of this labor for us for free? So then people started saying, well, maybe we can rob that labor off the shores of Africa and drag it into another continent and exploit it over there. And that's where race becomes inherently tied to a sense of personhood, and it becomes codified in physiology. It becomes connected to people's epistemologies right, and their appearance. So people have always known that they needed to make sense of their behavior. So it wasn't that people didn't contest what was happening. There's many accounts in the, in the Spanish colonial archives of people who traveled to the colonies and reported back to the crown and pleaded for them to stop what they were doing to indigenous people, right? So when people say, oh, you know, back in the day it was different, we had different rules. No, because at every turn in history, some people have often seen the violence as violence, right? So this idea of race, starts there, and we tell people that based on who you are, you have a place in human hierarchy. You have doubt that race is a signifier of humanness or not humanness. We didn't consider people, Aboriginal people in Australia, as humans until 1967. This is about 10 years after the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is ratified. Right? So race is a marker of exclusion by defining your degree of humanity. And while we've made a lot of progress, people don't openly say, you are an animal, or you are inherently inferior, you are genetically inferior, biologically inferior. And some people still do, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of them out there still. 
Um, we contest that race was something that was made, had to be remade, had to be protected, had to be guarded, had to be malleable. Some people were othered and over time included, right? Some people were included and over time excluded, right? So our narratives have changed. Race is very locally specific. It doesn't operate in the same way in every place. I can be a person of color here. If I go to Nigeria, I'll be white. Right? These are, these are contextual dynamics of race. If I'm in countries of the global south, I'm an extension of Europe, so I'm, I'm a European citizen. Um, so race is tied to all of these other systems. And based on these systems, some of us will have our humanity more recognized than others. Two, because of this history and the centrality of, of dominant ideas about racism, and the Holocaust is the, one of the biggest ones, and then the other two ones would be Jim Crow in the United States and South Africa, so, um, apartheid in South Africa. Those are the pre, like the most dominant narratives. All three of those ideas about racism speak about the pseudoscience of race, that people were classified as biologically, quote unquote, inferior. When the West developed responses to racism, one of the first documents we we start, we used to start thinking about racism as the UNESCO statements on race. So imagine after the Holocaust, Europe is forced to face its crimes, right? It's committed, it's committed one of the most violent crimes against humanity. It has to make sense of its own history. And Europe does so by saying, well, if the pseudoscience of race caused this atrocity, then we need to teach people that that pseudoscience is not factual. So most of the UNESCO statements on race were very preoccupied telling people race is not biologically real, we are, don't, we are not actually genetically this different, um, there's no evidence to, to suggest that um, people have intelligence God, that prior to the pseudoscience, the, the, what we call like the natural scientific um, approach to race, was preceded by the colonial approach to race. That in fact, Hitler drew his idea of the concentration camp to what Germans were doing in their colonies. So Namibia and parts of what then you know, was Rhodesia back in the day, right? So concentration camps were trialed in colonial times. So that history in that first attempt was erased. UNESCO's and Europe's conclusion was race created racism, so if we get rid of race, we get rid of racism. Now, race is in fact the father, not the child, right? So they say it's not that, it's not that race, race creates racism, but racism creates race. So racism is the father and race is the child. So we have banned race from our vocabulary. We have banned with the word race the entire history of how race has been used, how race has been made sense of, and that making sense is social, political, legal, and cultural. It's not just one aspect. If you have doubts about that, if people, when people were being classified, those classifications were never based on actual phenotype. You could have people from the same family being categorized as different types of racial groups. So race is always kind of contradictory and has come with its own complexities and contradictions. So it is in, this, in the aftermath of these processes of you know, the UNESCO, the world coming to grips with European crimes, um, that culture 
And I am very, very reluctant. I don't like that term at all anymore. Um, and ethnicity are suggested. Our race is not real. Let's talk about ethnicity as if ethnicity is somehow inherently um, not socially constructed. You know, people are like, Italian is an ethnicity. Now go to Naples and say that to someone. Um, right? So not saying that ethnicity doesn't exist. It's just that these terms are also socially constructed. So we start talking about culture. So we say, oh, if racism was because people believed in the pseudoscience of race, now we taught them that race isn't real. Um, people say, oh, we need to be multicultural. So people start experiencing forms of inclusion that basically essentialize culture, superior and inferior cultures, developed and underdeveloped cultures. People start um, kind of using culture in a way that masks discourses that otherwise would have been very much about your inherent, there's something inherently incompatible with you. So in the European context, we suddenly got the clash of civilizations, right? There's, there's civilizations that are incompatible, there's developed civilizations and underdeveloped civilizations, which tap very much into the same ideas that race created. Race created hierarchies of difference. People who were anthropologists, naturalists, theologians, they all looked at the world and said, these people are at the bottom of this pyramid and these people are on top, right? And when we talk about cultures and incompatibility, we do the same thing, right? Today, people say some cultures can't handle democracy. Um, so we kind of use these terms to mask the actual issue, which is we still have hierarchies of difference, we still have mass exclusion, we still have resources in the hands of the few who then dictate how you can access um, those resources. So again, race is a marker of difference. Race is inherently relational. For you to be racially other, somebody has to be the racially it, right? And that racially it was done through whiteness. Now the term, like, the Spanish people didn't describe themselves as white initially. They described themselves as Christian. Christian and non-Christian. Right? But when, you have, when you're in a context where suddenly everybody is Christian, you use other categories. So in the Spanish colonies, these categories were categories of mixing. Right? So people say, in Spain they love to say, we intermarried. Um, but in, an, in a relationship of unequal power, um, it's not marriage that happens, you know? It's violence that takes place. So there's categories. So the Spanish had a casta system, you had something similar in other colonies too, where people classified if you were mixed with white, if you were mixed with indigenous, if you were a mix of a black person and an indigenous person, all of these things were classified. And based on those classifications, you had access to certain positions. You could hold, you can do, um, I don't want to say jobs because all of it was like forced and um, coerced labor. So for us, when we think about anti-racism, anti-racism historically was never under the umbrella of anti-racism. It's been under the umbrella of resisting colonial racist violence. And at any moment in time in which people have been oppressed, people have resisted that oppression. They might have not called it anti-racism. When we think about these really overt examples of racism, such as South Africa's apartheid system, Jim Crow in the United States, or slavery in the United States, the Holocaust in Germany, people have responded to ain't I a woman speaking to white women during the suffrage movement, when people were marching in the civil rights movement in the United States, people were holding banners that said, I am a man, right? We all know, but the question was, does the state recognize you as a man? Does the state treat you as a man, as a human? 
And today we would see that in Black Lives Matter. Right? We say Black Lives Matter because in the actuality of our societies, when people die, whether that is of direct violence or indirect violence, some lives matter more than others. Um, some people are more human than others. Some stories count more than other stories. Have doubt? In 2015, the world described the aftermath of the war in Syria as the refugee crisis. I described that crisis as the border crisis. The crisis was not that people were trying to flee war and go into other countries to seek safety. The crisis was that most Western nations fortified their borders and tried to keep everybody out. When the war in Ukraine happened, particularly European countries were capable of something that I wish they were capable of with every conflict in, in, in history, which was to show compassion, to show humanity, and to welcome people because they realized it wasn't their fault, right? So we had people go to borders of Germany, pick people up, the state was sending, would filter out African students who were studying in the Ukraine, would not let them cross, it would exclude Indian international students who were in Ukraine and were trying to flee war zones, but we opened our arms to people who looked like us. Right? So race is also about how the nation imagines itself and enforces its borders. Have doubt about that. If you're from somewhere in the UK and you moved here, or your family moved here, nobody has ever asked you, but where are you really from? If you're Chinese, fourth generation, and your ancestors came here during the gold rush, people will say to you, where are you really from? So the measure of New Zealand nationhood is not measured by whether you're Maori or not, it's measured whether you're white or not. So it is a creation of belonging. It's an inside and an outside based on markers of difference that we hierarchically organize. So having said all of this, if racism is about systems and racism is about political decisions, political decisions of who gets to be here, who gets to have rights, whose health matters, who should have access to housing, who should have access and succeed in education. Why do we reduce it to a moral failure? Why do we feel bad when somebody says racist? Right? You hurt my feelings. And then hurt feelings become more important than material condition. And I urge you, if you're one of those people, and I mean, please look really deeply inside yourself, if you ever prioritize your feeling, what you are signaling to people is that my hurt feelings are more important than people not having enough to eat, people not being able to flee war, people not having the right to ask for their resources back, um, for people to be recognized in their own country, so then your feelings, and feelings are like really important, like I get it, like feelings are really valid, um, but they're not equal to material condition. So this is why I hate the word bias. Bias is that I didn't mean to. Most of us don't mean to. So I made this metaphor to describe racism to my students. Imagine you have a dishwasher, and you put dishes into your dishwasher, and then the dish breaks. And you're like, oh, that dish might have had a crack on it, right? Load your dishwasher again, and then the plate breaks. And he goes, oh, I guess that dishwasher also had a crack in it. And then your friend brings her dishes and is like, you know, my dishwasher's broken. Can you just chuck these in yours? And you put your friend's dish dishes in your dishwasher, and they break. 
and you realize maybe the dishes don't have a crack, but you keep loading that faulty dishwasher over and over and over again. Now that dishwasher is racism. That dishwasher is the system. So at some point, the first five times, you didn't know. You didn't know your dishwasher is faulty. But when you choose to use that same faulty dishwasher, whose fault is it? Yours or the dishwasher? You know, and of course, that's a very bad analogy of racism. It's a very bad analogy. But, you know, it's, that's how I feel, people. I guess I didn't mean to. Now, when you break a dish and then you say, I'm sorry to it, it miraculously doesn't come back into one piece either. Now, the issue with this moral, the focus on the morality is that we move away from the political. And that leads me to anti-racism. If, if racism is political, it's about systems. It's about 500 years of exploitation, 500 years of colonial and racial thought being thought and rethought and other people being exploited. Why do we think that conversations and education is going to fix it? By all means, I'm an educator, so I, you know, like the university needs enrollments, so please come to my class. But I have no expectation that racism is fixed in my classroom. I have the expectation that the conversations in my classroom reach people to take action outside the classroom. Um, feelings are not what leads us. Like, compassion should lead us, I agree. Empathy should lead us. Obviously, rage should lead, lead us. But your desire to feel good can't lead you. You have to be a killjoy. If you want to feel good in the struggle, the struggle ain't for you. Um, primarily because we can't go after hundreds of years of harm to feeling good. Here comes my other metaphor. People want to do anti-racism in a feel-good manner by saying, I'm on a journey. I'm on a journey. I'm on my Tereo journey. We're in this waka together. Um, you want to be on the waka, by all means, be our guest, like you're welcome. Um, catch up. Now, it is the duty of people like myself who've dedicated themselves to racism, to anti-racist work and education to do that with you. But it is not the job of every other person. So if you come into my class, I will never say to you, catch up, because my job is to walk with you. But if you do that in a struggle, if you do that in a movement, if you do that in a room with your friends, um, that's actually counterproductive, right? So anti-racism isn't the opposite of racism. It is also not the absence of racism. It's the act of struggle to undo all of the harm that has happened, all of the resources that are taken and consolidated in the hands of the few. It's a continual practice of creating a different world. Right? If we center the feelings of the ones who are actually empowered in society, we're not creating a different world. If we're pulling people back in time to join us when we are ready, we are again signaling, nothing starts unless I'm ready. Right? So it can't be about that. And it can't also be just about intentions. Example. A significant anti-racist movement in this country, I mean, it's, not, it's just one out of many, is the struggle against apartheid. Now, you might not know this. New Zealand had some of the biggest anti-apartheid protests outside South Africa. So, like, really significant. 
people know, like people looked here and people organized, I mean, I would say probably really well. Some people who were organizing are in this room, you know who you are. Um, and that was a moment where Marty said, oh, it's on, that's very nice. That's really important. We kind of like, yeah, we see that. But there's racism here. Maori anti-racism work wasn't about educating people about racism. It was about political aspirations, right? It was about reclaiming culture, reclaiming language, reclaiming land, very political claims. It wasn't about, oh, I want you to understand what I do at home and what I eat. Political aspirations. Pākehā stepped in to convince the rest that it was legitimate that people had political aspirations. But somehow we have been stuck in that loop in which anti-racism work is about awareness raising. Awareness raising that doesn't take the next step, right? We constantly raise awareness, raise awareness, raise awareness. But we don't actually partake in the political aspirations of the people that we want to be in solidarity with. So if you are racialized, if you are indigenous, you live as always already at risk of violence by default. In some countries, that means 10 years, left, 10 years less life expectancy. It might mean increased chances of police brutality. It means less access to housing, job, dis job market discrimination. So black and brown and indigenous people live with risk by existing, just by existing. Even if we don't want to do anti-racist work, we just exist, we exist with risk. Now, anti-racism has to involve risk for the people who don't suffer those risks already, right? So we can't feel good. If you want to feel good in the struggle, you're not understanding that it's very hard to get resources back. Very, very hard. Why do we think that diversity, cultural responsive practice, culture is going to be the response? Don't get me wrong, diversity is important. Diversity is important because if you have diverse minds around a table, they will see different things. Diversity is important because we should love each other no matter how different we are. Being aware of diff people's different cultural practices is just being a good person. It's being curious and humble and open. But how is that going to fix racism? Right? So our collective response has to address what Ruth Wilson Gilmore defines racism as. And she says, she's a geographer, Marxist geographer, and she says, racism is the state-sanctioned and or extra-legal um, production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerability to premature death. And I say premature death because we often in Western countries focus on the symbolic, we focus on our names being mispronounced, we focus on people being really oblivious to conversations that have happened, people not hiring diverse people, and all of those things are important, but we forget that there's real systems out there, real systems of poverty, of exploitation, of physical harm, of border violence, um, that we're not addressing when we just focus on culture. So I recently listened to a podcast called Crimes of Infrastructure on my favorite podcast, Surviving Society. Go check it out, it's very good. Um, and they're talking about the crimes of Guantanamo Bay. Right? Guantanamo Bay, if you do not know, it's an it's a offshore prison that the Americans have on an island that they once upon a time leased from Cuba. Currently, like the Cubans want to end that relationship. But they have a prison on there that sits outside 
the legal system of the United States, in which they hold so-called terrorists, often with you know, years, years in that prison, suffered torture. It's very hard to get real details about what happens in Guantanamo Bay. Um, and in that podcast, they were describing that Americans have gotten really good to develop a language to make sense of things that does not sound that, it, that, that they're doing something wrong. So I don't know if you're familiar, last year a number of um, inmates in Guantanamo Bay went on to uh, hunger strike. Of course, you can't do a hunger strike in Guantanamo Bay, you would be force-fed. Um, so they decided, okay, we're going to force-feed these people, and force-feeding is considered torture in some contexts. Um, so they decided, okay, we have to, to force-feed them, because if they remain on their hunger strike, they could die, so we, are, we have an obligation to look after the well-being of our inmates. Um, don't think about why people are on hunger strike. But you do have, like, right, as a prison, you have an obligation for the you know, well-being, quote-unquote, of your inmates. Um, and the people were on hunger strike during Ramadan. So in Guantanamo Bay, culturally very sensitive, real cultural sensitivity here, they decided that when they were forced feeding the inmates, they used a liquid that tasted like dates, because Muslims traditionally break the fast with a date. Now, that is very culturally responsive, I'm telling you. That's a, probably the most culturally sensitive way to force feed a Muslim uh, inmate who's on hunger strike during Ramadan, right? So what I'm saying is you can be culturally responsive and culturally sensitive and not understand what the actual problem is. And I know that's a very extreme example. Now, all of this, of course, exists in combination to other things, right? We're not separate from other people. The conversations that colonial people had, like colonizers had about people in the Americas came with people when they came here. The conversations people had about indigenous people here were built on ideas that they had about indigenous people in the broader Pacific, right? These classifications of Melanesians, um, Polynesians, and Micronesians, these are inherently very colonial ideas. So we don't exist in isolation. Not even our suffering exists in isolation. So our liberation can't exist in isolation from each other either. Um, and on to top that, um, some would go as far, you can ask me a question about that. This also exists in a, in a context of capitalism that is inherently very racialized, right? Like our economic system is not an economic system that does not see people, that does not see hierarchies of difference, and that does not see global north and global south, right? So we can think about racism locally, very locally, in Christchurch, what am I doing here in my school, nationally, but we need to have a conversation with our peers because we can't fix it if we just do it in one area and forget to think about how we're implicated with each other, because our exploitation is connected. So our liberation has to be tied together too. So that's me. If you want to show your human superiority uh, against, uh, for example, Neanderthals, mm. who is, which was e extinct already, actually, we all humans share Neanderthals genes as well. Mm. If you want to uh, show your, uh, for example, the color skin, there's no such gene called the black skin. It's a multiple gene, and we mm. all share with that. Mm. I think t simply teaching those facts can help and teach racism. Now, I do disagree that if we teach people the science, they will stop because 
I can point just from the top of my head at 15 books that have been written in the last five years who make claims to innate intelligence differences between white people and immigrants in Europe, between white people and black people in the United States. That conversation is coming back strong, right? So we also know, for me, it's never been about, it's never been about facts. When Europeans were measuring skulls, their data was inconclusive, even to them. It didn't matter, right? Like, we live in an age where it doesn't matter if it's true or not. It serves a political mobilization purpose. And we have to interrogate. I'm not saying we can stop that, but we have to develop a way to interrogate what is the purpose of that conversation. Because sometimes when I give this talk, people are like, but there's a difference between a tall person and a, and a short person, and there's a difference between your black hair and your, somebody's blonde hair. Yes, there is. Nobody says a difference doesn't exist. It's how difference is mobilized, right? And it's not just about, and people try to reduce it to melanin. Like, race wasn't just about skin color. People talked about hair texture, about the length of a nose. So if you want to know how the Nazis racialized Jews, right? They found ways to say it's about the nose. It's the crooked nose, it's the curly hair, it's this. So they try to legally, socially, politically create ideas about actual difference that never existed. And people bought into it, right? Again, race wasn't just about physical appearance. Race is also tied to how we create other through religion. Right? Anti-Semitism, the long, well, not the longest, one of the longest forms of discrimination in the European continent, preceded probably or at the same time as discrimination against Roma people, um, has found other ways to classify as other. Right? But we do that now too. And I think there is, I don't think we fight racism with relativism, and I agree with you there. Right? Like this notion of, oh, let's just let everyone be who they want to be, and it's going to be really good from now on. Um, because we don't exist in a power vacuum, right? So I think these conversations are complex. They take more than a TED Talk, and they take more than a one-minute TikTok video, because if it was that easy, we would have fixed it already. Um, but it's coming back. And some of the stuff we thought was gone has come back. Like, some of the things we thought we have left in the past have become completely socially acceptable again. And that, to me, says that our anti-racism has gone astray somewhere. You know, because we spend too much time trying to help people become better people rather than building a movement, building a political structure, offering alternatives. Right? Um, I'm going to pose a very provocative question to you. How do you respond to the, uh, the expression that white people can't ex experience racism? Mm -hmm. um, so because it's a system, I think everybody can experience discrimination. Everybody can experience discrimination. Is that tied to a system of political power that at every turn of your life will impact your life chances in this country? I don't think so. I do think that poverty does that. I think that class is a system under which white people experience a hell of a lot of uh, oppression. But I don't think that if we reduce racism to be all forms of feeling bad, um, it does a disservice because we need, to name, we need to name the problem to address the problem, right? So sometimes people say, it's racist because somebody said, like, people with glasses are ugly, um, right? And I'm like, oh, okay, I don't show, no, I'm not sure if that is racist. And it doesn't mean that we don't want to recognize other people's harm, 
right? So I, I, I hear that a lot. People say, oh, I never knew what racism was like until I went to Africa and I was the only white person. Um, and then I was, like, <laughs> I was like, okay. You know, like, um, because if I died in some country in the African continent, I have access to resources that most people don't, even as a corpse, right? Why? German passport. Now, I don't necessarily have the same rights as if I was, you know, more German-looking, or whatever that might mean, right? Um, so I do think it's about contesting. It also helps us contest. I'm not saying let's agree. Let's agree that nations are this. We can change that. I would love to live in a place where anybody could say, I'm from here, and nobody would say, where are you really from, right? So when I say anti-racism is fundamentally rethinking the society we want to be in, it allows us to rethink our relationships to each other that are not based on exclusion. The other one that people say is, oh, and I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be really provocative, if Māori get everything back, how do we know they're not gonna kick us out? <laughs> question, I hear that question, because if you're not Māori, people will disclose a lot more than you would like them to disclose to you. Um, and I think it's because that's, that's a limitation of our imagination. We have been, we have internalized violence and colonization and all forms of supremacy so much that we cannot trust other people. We cannot trust other people to not create a world like we created. And I mean, I include myself in that we now because it's hard. That practice of imagination is really hard. And I think that goes for indigenous people and non-indigenous people. When we advocate, what is the future we want? Is this one where you draw another line? But it's different when people are reclaiming things than it's when people are having all of the assets and they're like, oh, I don't like your discourse. You know, so you, I think that's kind of the complication that I see. And it's hard to imagine that. Is there a world in which we can move? And I'm a big fan of free movement. Free movement. I'm the product of, you know, defied movement. Um, I don't want a world in which everything gets back into the hands of people who, you know, were there first for them to, to exclude other people painfully. I don't want that but I also want to trust the process along the way, which is hard, because that's a practice of, you know, it's a practice of mad trust, but also believing that we're working towards something that's different. So for me, anti-racism is honestly, it's a very big creative project. It's a project of what can we imagine? Can we imagine the things that don't exist? Again, Ruth Wilson Gilmer says she's an abolitionist. She doesn't believe prisons should exist. And she always says, there's only one thing we need to change. And that one thing is everything. <laughs> Something simple, one thing. Change one thing. We are in an era where we are calling out um, the violence of colonialism and white supremacy more than we ever have, which for people that have lived in comfort for such a long time is confronting. Mm. So my question to you is, what is a suggested response for the weaponization of our way of articulating that violence against the very people who experience that violence? Good question. I think my question has two parts, and they're two parts of based on who I'm talking to. So I think when people decide they want to be part of, of liberation, and I use the word liberation because I think that's what anti-racism is about liberation. If, if racism is about oppression, then anti-racism is about liberation. Um, they have to understand that it can't be on their terms and what makes sense to them. 
But we know historically that has always happened, right? Historically, we do something to an enemy or you know, a group. Um, that's kind of how um, an antagonistic relationship functions. You will try to use all tools available to you to disarm your opponent, including their own, right? So I think that risk has always existed. It's not particularly new. I think it just happens, it's, uh, it's aggravated by the fact that we live in the social media age, that one thing can now be multiplied by a thousand much faster than it could have been before. But we had very similar things with affirmative action, right? So in the States, affirmative action was increasing quotas for people in jobs, and there's a number of books actually that have been written, a number of research articles that show that the number one group that benefited from affirmative action practices in the United States was white women. That doesn't mean that affirmative action wasn't maybe an important intervention. We see the same thing with intersectionality, right? And intersectionality became a buzzword. It's primarily used in gender studies and has completely sidelined race. People talk about gender studies, they talk about sexuality, they talk about gender identity, they talk about class, but they're like, mm, race out. And they erase the fuckapapa of that struggle, right? So I think that it's not new. For me, it's not new. And if the more we know about our history, the more we understand that these things aren't new and we've responded to them before. Now, my critique, my critique to ourselves is we don't do enough movement building, capacity building, and we fight too much the symbolic. We are so focused on fighting the symbolic and not organizing the material that our struggles fall very easily because once we are like disarmed, then we go back and we have to find new terms and then we have five years of arguments about which terms to use. Um, like if you're organizing on the left, that's real, that struggle is real. Um, so I think it's both. And then we have to constantly speak back. And that to me speaks also to the rise of conspiracy theories because if you go onto the right and the far right, we don't have, we don't speak into the, into the crowds. We don't speak into the crowds because we're surviving, we're trying to work in our communities, and most of us are like, I'm just tired, um, right? Um, but we need to constantly bring people in and grow and build capacity, and that has to be intergenerational. I think my biggest issue with, with anti-racism is that it's often very much led by young people who then don't want to listen to old people, um, and then we constantly reinvent the wheel. Um, and that's not right. Whether or not, like sometimes it's good to call out our elders because they, you know, sometimes are very stuck in their ways, but we can't chuck them out because they have very important institutional knowledge, they have historical knowledge. They've done it all before, and we need that. We need that, you know? So for me, I, I became an activist with old people. And I used to think, oh, these people are so old and they were 40. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but now I'm so glad, like I'm so glad that I've always been around people 20, 40 years older than me because when somebody would do something, they were like, oh, we can do this, we can, and they had relationships and they would spot a Nazi in the protest like nothing else, like, like something I've never seen, like German anti-fascists are like Nazi detectors. They're like, that person is an infiltrator and I was like, oh, how do you know? And they're just like, it's just because they've been there year after year after year that they know. Um, so show some appreciation for the people who've gone before you. 
And talk back, talk back, talk back, I think is the number one. And we need to get better at creating our own spaces of media production. Um, because I know that sounds a little bit conspiracy theory, but mainstream media isn't very great. You know, when people are like, ooh, the far right, saying bad things about the media. I'm like, the people like us also say bad things about the media. <laughs> um, because it doesn't portray the complexities. So that it lies, it just doesn't represent the complexities.